Welcome to Learning English from the Voice of America. Our program is aimed at English learners, so we speak a little slower and use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. Every day, we bring you news and information about America and the world. This is what you will hear on our program. You will hear a report from Ana Mateo, then our science report. Next, listen for our American History series, The Making of a Nation. But first, this from Dory Gundy. Civil rights movement hero Martin Luther King Jr is honored with a holiday on the third Monday in January. He would have been 90 years old this month, but was murdered in 1968 at the age of 39. King led a movement of nonviolent, peaceful protests to fight racial injustice in the United States. The first example of this movement began in December of 1955. It was the Montgomery bus boycott in the southern state of Alabama. Many southern cities, including Montgomery, practiced racial segregation or the separation of black and white Americans in public places. When using public transportation, such as buses, the law in Montgomery stated that blacks must enter from the back door, and the first ten rows of seats were for whites only. On December 1st, in 1955, a black woman, Rosa Parks, was riding a bus on her way home from work. She refused to give her seat to a white man and was arrested. At the time, King was a 26-year-old clergyman at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. In an interview with the British Broadcasting Corporation in 1961, he explained what happened next. More than 99% of the Negro people of Montgomery rose up with righteous indignation, I would say, and this led to the bus boycott. They asked me to serve as a spokesman, and then from this time, I found myself in a leadership position in the civil rights struggle. In Montgomery, King and others organized a one-day boycott of city buses on December 5th. Three days later, under the leadership of King and others, a list of demands was presented to city officials. The demands included fair seating for all and courteous treatment by bus operators. The demands were not met. City officials and white opponents tried to defeat the boycott. Blacks organized and helped one another to meet transportation needs. Many blacks walked or rode bikes to where they needed to go. King's home was bombed in early 1956, 
he and his family were not hurt. That same year, King was arrested and found guilty of interfering with a business. Blacks in Montgomery stayed off city buses through 1956. More than a year after the boycott began, on the 20th of December in 1956, the Supreme Court agreed with a lower court decision that public bus segregation is not legal. King's role in the bus boycott won international attention. His example of mass nonviolent protest was a model for fighting injustice in the United States for decades to come. I'm Dorothy Gundy. In the United States, many people think of drunk driving when they hear the term breathalyzer. If you are suspected of driving under the influence of alcohol, police will most likely ask you to breathe into a breathalyzer. This device identifies how much alcohol is in your blood by measuring the amount of alcohol in your breath. Now, researchers are using the same technology to test for something else, cancer. This breathalyzer, created by Al Stone Medical, can identify and measure chemicals in a person's breath. And it finds these chemicals at very low levels, usually parts per billion. British researchers have asked 1,500 people to take part in tests of the device. Each person will wear a special mask and breathe normally for 10 minutes. The mask is equipped with collection tubes. These tubes capture the chemicals in the person's breath. The lead investigator is Rebecca Fitzgerald of Cambridge University in England. She says, the Alstone breathalyzer is a simple device. These tubes, simple though they, they look, um, this is one of the things that's made a real difference in this technology looking so promising. Because for the first time, the chemicals that are breathed out um, in the breath can be collected in these tubes and immediately stabilized. So as you keep breathing, you're capturing more and more of those chemicals um, and you're building up a profile of the chemicals in your body that have been exhaled on the breath. The tubes are then sent to Alstone's laboratory. There, researchers examined the volatile organic compounds in the breath. Those VOCs, as they are known, are produced by the body's normal chemical processes. However, changes in chemical activity can produce particular markings and those markings can be biomarkers, providing evidence of disease. 
some biomarkers may show evidence of cancer in its earliest stages. Cancer develops in stages. The earlier cancer is identified, the greater the chance of survival. One of Alstone's founders is Billy Boyle. He says cancer often appears, or as he says, presents itself after it has spread. The challenge is most people present when it's very late stage uh, and it's about managing symptoms as opposed to curing them. So the key thing that you can do is detect the disease early and that's what we think the breathalyzer technology uh, allows for, picking it up at that earliest stage when it's treatable. The testing of the Alstone breathalyzer is currently limited to patients with suspected esophageal and stomach cancers. Esophageal cancer is a leading cause of cancer deaths around the world. Most cases are reported in developing countries. Esophageal cancer in early stages usually has no signs. However, the chemical markers of the disease are present even in the earliest stage. Over the two-year trial, researchers will extend testing of the breathalyzer to include patients with other cancers. I'm Ana Mateo. The Ebola virus is one of the world's deadliest viral diseases. Now, a partnership of public and private organizations in the United States and Canada says it has found a combination of drugs that might treat the deadly disease. Earlier this month, the World Health Organization reported that at least 580 people in the Democratic Republic of the Congo had contracted the Ebola virus. At least 383 of those people have died from the disease. The spread of the virus has been difficult to contain, although treatments, including a vaccine, have improved. The ongoing conflict in the country's east has interfered with aid efforts. The Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, is where scientists first discovered the Ebola virus in 1976. At that time, the country was called Zaire. The disease was named after the Ebola River, where the virus was infecting people. From the time of its discovery up to 2013, there was no treatment or vaccine. Scientists, however, started studying the virus, trying to design better ways to treat its different forms. They succeeded in producing a vaccine. Vaccinations helped to end the Ebola outbreak that spread through three West African countries between 2013 and 2016. 
More than 11,000 people died in that outbreak. At that time, treatment for the form of the Ebola virus that came from Zaire was developed, but it was costly to produce and is not effective in treating two other deadly forms of Ebola, the Sudan and Bundibugyo viruses. Now, scientists have found one treatment for three forms of the virus. Their research produced a combination of drugs called MBP-134. They say the treatment helped monkeys infected with the three forms of Ebola recover. Also, the treatment requires only one injection. Thomas Geisbert led the research at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. It was part of a public-private partnership that included the company MAP Biopharmaceutical, the U.S. Army Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, and the Public Health Agency of Canada. Geisbert told VOA about the need for a treatment that would work against all forms of Ebola. When an outbreak occurs, we really don't know which one of those three strains, species we call them, is the cause, he said. He added that earlier treatments available had only worked well against the Zaire species. Geisbert said his group's goal was to develop a treatment that would work for any form of Ebola. If I have to make a drug that only works against Zaire, and another drug that only works against Sudan, and another drug that only works against the Bundibugyo species, that is extremely expensive, he noted. Geispert said the new treatment will save valuable time in identifying which form of Ebola is spreading in an outbreak. He said it will save lives because people can be treated immediately, and it will also save money. Geispert noted that there is not a lot of profit for the companies that produce the drugs because there is a very small international market for Ebola treatments. So it really has to be sponsored by the government, he said. In addition to the U.S. Army and the Canadian government, the U.S. National Institutes of Health has supported the research. Geisbert said the work ahead involves changing the amount of the drugs used to their lowest possible levels. That will make it easier to offer it to the public and to reduce costs. Also, testing the drugs on humans must be carried out to ensure the treatment is safe and works well. The treatment may not be ready to help people with Ebola infections in the current outbreak in the DRC, but countries affected by the virus could have the treatment ready to deal with future Ebola outbreaks if additional tests are successful. I'm Pete Musto. From VOA Learning English, welcome to the Making of a Nation. I'm Steve Ember. 
In the middle of the 1850s, the United States was again struggling with the issue of slavery. The dispute centered increasingly on Kansas, a territory in the middle of the country. In Kansas, white men were able to vote on whether they wanted slavery to be legal in the territory. Many Kansas settlers opposed slavery. Some of the settlers were northern abolitionists. They believed that owning another person was immoral. Many farmers also opposed legalizing slavery. They did not want to compete with slave labor. But many people in the nearby state of Missouri wanted Kansas to permit slavery. Slavery was legal in Missouri, and many Missouri slave owners wanted to live next to a territory where slavery was legal. So when Kansas held elections, pro-slavery men from Missouri crossed the border and voted illegally. Yet their votes were accepted. The result of the territorial elections is that you have a territorial legislature that is overwhelmingly pro-slavery. It will write a slave code for Kansas. It will say Kansas is a slave territory. Slavery is protected here. Nicole Etchison is a historian. She says the newly elected Kansas legislature created strong laws to protect slavery in the territory. The laws said no Kansan could speak or write against slavery. And they said people who tried to help slaves escape could be put in jail or executed. The lawmakers also demanded that President Franklin Pierce dismiss the territory's governor who opposed slavery. The president agreed. He appointed a pro-slavery governor instead. Anti-slavery settlers in Kansas grew angry. They felt they could not get fair treatment from the president or the new governor. They said pro-slavery groups cheated to control the elections. So the anti-slavery settlers took an extreme step. They formed their own government. Their political group was known as the Free State Party. Its members wrote their own constitution. They also chose their own governor. Historian Nicole Etchison says Free State members refused to recognize the bogus authority of the official Kansas legislature. That is the argument that the free state political movement will make. Not so much that slavery is an awful thing, although some of them make that argument, but that free white settlers in Kansas have had their political rights at the ballot box denied. President Pierce said the actions of the free state party seemed revolutionary. He said that if party members attacked any government property or official, party leaders should be charged with treason. Pierce gave the pro-slavery governor of Kansas control of troops at two army bases 
in the territory. The situation threatened to turn violent at any time. In November 1855, a pro-slavery man killed a free state man in a dispute over land claims. To answer the attack, free state settlers threatened the killer and burned his house. At the same time, hundreds of pro-slavery men crossed the border from Missouri. They planned to burn the town of Lawrence where many free state members lived. The pro-slavery governor and the free state governor agreed to hold an emergency meeting. They negotiated a settlement, and the men from Missouri went home. But the truce did not last long. In the weeks that followed, a pro-slavery sheriff attempted to arrest the leaders of the free state government but failed. A few days later, the law enforcement official was shot. Around the same time, a pro-slavery grand jury found several free state leaders guilty of treason. The grand jury also said the town of Lawrence was supporting illegal newspapers and a hotel that stored weapons. Pro-slavery officials moved to take control of the town. The wounded sheriff urged private citizens to help. Once again, hundreds of men, including many from Missouri, gathered in Kansas. Once again, the target was Lawrence. This time, however, there was no truce. On May 21, 1856, a group of pro-slavery men marched into the town. Historian David Potter describes the incident in his book, The Impending Crisis. He says the mob entered Lawrence with flags and flying banners as if it were a victorious army. Some men threw two newspaper printing presses into the river. Others freed as much alcohol as they could find. And, Potter writes, the group turned five cannons on the Free State Hotel. The mob fired the cannons at the hotel and burned the house where the Free State governor lived. But no anti-slavery settlers were killed. The only person killed was a pro-slavery man. He died when part of the Free State Hotel fell on him. Anti-slavery newspapers called the attack the Sack of Lawrence. In other words, they suggested that pro-slavery raiders had completely destroyed the town. A settler named John Brown heard about the attack on Lawrence. Brown was from the eastern state of Connecticut, but he had recently moved to Kansas. He strongly opposed slavery. He also thought the free state government was too weak. So John Brown persuaded four of his sons, his son-in-law, 
and two other men to answer the sack of Lawrence. Brown believed that the battle against the forces of slavery must continue, and he believed that God had chosen him to lead it. Late at night, Brown and the other men went to a settlement near Potawatomi Creek. They went to three homes and seized five pro-slavery men. Took these men out of their beds, defenseless, unarmed, and hacked them to death with broadswords. Historian Nicole Etchison explains that Brown's group seized the men, murdered them, and left their bodies next to the creek. The event became known as the Potawatomi Massacre. The combination of the sack of Lawrence and the Potawatomi Massacre frightened both pro- and anti-slavery forces. Both sides believed they could be attacked at any time. They began collecting weapons to defend themselves. In the summer and autumn of 1856, the competing forces repeatedly threatened each other. They forced each other off land. They burned each other's houses. More people were killed. The territory became known as Bleeding Kansas. Nicole Etchison says the term Bleeding Kansas was evocative. In other words, it made people feel strongly. The term is so evocative because it's a propaganda term. Ms. Etchison says that many people, especially in the North, were against slavery in the territory. These individuals used the term Bleeding Kansas in their newspapers to gain support for their cause. The Kansas-Nebraska Act and the violence that followed also gave birth to a new political party. Its members called themselves Republicans. The Republican Party was an unusual combination of groups. It included former Democrats who were angry that their party had supported the Kansas-Nebraska Act. They believed the Democrats were allowing slavery to expand. The Republicans also included members of the old Whig Party. The Whig Party had lost badly in the elections of 1852 because its members could not agree on whether slavery should be legal. Anti-slavery Whigs found a new home in the Republican Party. The Republican Party of the 1850s also included voters who did not support immigrants, especially Irish Catholics. These nativist Republicans wanted to protect the rights of American Protestants. All Republicans were united, however, in their opposition to slavery in the Kansas and Nebraska territories. Some Republicans were abolitionists. They wanted to ban slavery everywhere in the United States. But the majority of Republicans had no interest in ending slave labor in the South. They simply did not want slavery to spread to other areas. Nicole Etchison says that white Southerners 
did not respond well to the new party. They believed that all Republicans were like John Brown, the anti-slavery settler who had murdered five pro-slavery men. White Southerners do not see the distinction between a Republican Party that says, we don't like slavery, it's immoral, it shouldn't expand, and a John Brown who says, I don't like slavery, it's immoral, and it ought to be overturned by violence. In 1854, some Republicans from the state of Illinois asked a politician named Abraham Lincoln to serve on their committee. Lincoln refused. He did not like slavery, but he still supported the Whig Party. Two years later, in 1856, the Republicans nominated a presidential candidate for the first time. He was John C. Fremont. Fremont had explored the American West. He had been a senator from California. He was young and exciting. Republicans thought he was the right man to lead their young and exciting party. I'm Steve Ember, inviting you to join us next time for The Making of a Nation, American History, from VOA Learning English. And that's our program for today. Listen again tomorrow for another VOA Learning English program on The Voice of America.